Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network, on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We're counting down the most iconic haunted mansions of the Ozarks. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. So what do you think may surprise people about Ozarks mansions and hauntings? Perhaps that there are a number of mansions in the Ozarks, and we do invite you to tell us your favorite haunted mansion in the Ozarks in the comments below, and likely that those mansions don't often fit into the stereotype of a quote-unquote haunted mansion, from centuries-old elegance to a statement in the form of a house in the frontier back when the Ozarks was the frontier, there are a number of ghost stories to tell. We will return to Haunted Mansions, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book Dark Ozarks, The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's Best Brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Top 10 haunted mansions of the Ozarks. This is admittedly a little controversial because it is a subjective list, and we do invite you to give us your thoughts as we go. Yes, we may be wrong, so don't be afraid to tell us that. Or you might be wrong, not you, them. Uh, we all might be wrong. Yeah, uh, I'm wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> so, a haunted mansion. It's something that seems ordinary and just taken for granted in America, but it's not always been that case. 
It's not. I want, I want to lead with this, with the haunted mansions in the Ozarks. And then we'll we'll talk about the the subconscious idea that we have embedded in us about the, the mansions, about haunted mansions. The, in the Ozarks, there are many different types of mansions. Mm-hmm. Some of them could even be surprising if you're, if you have a very specific image in your head about haunted mansions, but some not. There's, there's a number on the list that really do look like the quintessential haunted mansion. Yes. And something that is particularly fascinating to me, not only in terms of studying architectural styles throughout the Ozark, but slice of American history and U.S. history is that many of the the homes, the large grand homes that were built in the Ozarks beginning uh, with the, you know, around the time of early settlement, beginning approximately around 1820 and extending to approximately 1900, the range of homes is really, really impressive it's formidable it can be very confusing and what classified as a mansion in one time and space could be very different than what classified as a mansion in another time that's that's very true i mean it's it's a it's a fluid concept in in the region over time and to be honest was in a lot of places it's not just in this area but there was a lot of change that happened over a relatively short period of time that meant that what people thought was a mansion or, or considered was a mansion 20 years later wouldn't even be on the radar. So Something else that's really interesting is that the social impressions of style was and is just like it is now was a big deal and there were at various times certain styles that would move in and out of favor and very very pushed by uh, social pressure economic pressure social and, and economic change going on and also generational change mm-hmm. and it could be argued that beginning particularly around 1920, that there was a a really heavy push to deride the Gilded Age, to deride the the Victorian homes, these grand mansions with all of their complexities and their eccentricities, and push toward a sleek, modern style, or the idea that there was a lot of intense corruption or social repression going on during that era, which is not an unfair assessment at times, particularly among the extremely wealthy. True. And and it also was a sign of the times of the progressive era when there was a push to break up monopolies. That's when Standard Oil was broken up, U.S. Steel, so that many of the very wealthy in the country who were associated with being, you know, the Robert Barons and that Gilded Age that had some very disparate impacts against the average person was viewed not so fondly anymore. And as a consequence, what was associated with those figures in some cases also 
fell under the hammer and that happened to be its extravagant homes or mansions. It did. And of course, you combine that with some, some pretty dramatic economic recessions that left a number of those grand homes empty and moldering in the, the lots that yep. they were built. There, there's a lot of social factors, especially interesting to me now. I, I grew up, of course, I grew up in the 1980s. I have always been drawn to, to uh, Victorian era homes, uh, the grand homes with uh, all of the gingerbread and everything. And I've always considered them to be extraordinarily beautiful. There's one particular on Highway 34 in Fairfield, Iowa that I have always loved. It was painted in multi-shades of lavender and completely restored on the exterior in the 1980s. And I was like, oh my gosh, that looks amazing. I would I would make sure that I was awake on the road trip to Grandpa and Grandma just so I could look at it. <laughs> and so very, for myself, certainly growing up in the 80s, very far removed from this derisive modernist push of the 1920s that said, we need to get rid of all this because it's very grotesque. It is very heavy and, and repressive. And it represents our childhood, which we apparently hate, and lots and lots of, of baggage, really, emotional, economic, social baggage. And some of that, I also think, was fair because it was certainly times of the robber barons, as you mentioned. It was a time of great economic upheaval at various times. It was also Reconstruction. We're talking about coming out of the Civil War where even for the quote-unquote winning side with the Union, we're dealing with the, the devastation of thousands upon thousands dead. I mean, it, it was symbolic of that. But all of those economic and social factors don't make a mansion haunted. And so there, there was more to it that got us to the point of that unconscious reflection of seeing an image of a gothic victorian home and instantly saying that looks haunted it is and and i think that the the hopper paintings of those images of that imagery was was definitely a huge spurring on of that push but i think the timing of this uh, disillusioned era uh, mm -hmm. the and it, it seems to really be tied to immediately following World War One as well. That's true. And there's a, there's a bit of symmetry between that era and coming out of the Civil War. We didn't lose near as many soldiers, but it was really the first war that had a lot of atrocities since the Civil War. The Spanish-American War was almost a frolic in comparison. It was, it and was. It, and it lasted a couple of months. <laughs> and, and, and I think in comparison as a prelude to the Civil War, the, the Mexican-American War, uh, yeah. generating these iconic heroes producing an American president in essence, there, there was a, the, the sense of tragedy that was associated, but it was, it could be cast within romantic terms. Yes. Almost almost as it as it was happening and, and and pretty much really the almost escapades of the rough riders and so forth it it really was and then you get to world war one and suddenly you get the morass of trench warfare mm -hmm. and you get 
poison gas, you get mustard gas, you, you get horrific deaths and injuries that had not been seen since the Civil War. And honestly, even more efficient at death. Very much so. You, and you, it was on such a scale too, not, not so much for the Americans, but for the broader war, you know, you had, you had battles that half a million men died in. And, and, and at the same time that this information, I, I think that they're, they're for the American psyche and the, the existential questions of grief and technology and war, the, you really can see a book ending between the Civil War and World War One, and the iconic images of the Haunted Mansion are sandwiched in between. That's true. And so, as you noted earlier about the painted houses, the gingerbread and so forth, those iconic elements, I think, became embedded in our psyche. And then through a, a series of things unconsciously became the shorthand, the hieroglyph, so to speak, the emoji for haunted. <laughs> it, it was, it was, and, and, and it was an emoji of a haunted house. <laughs> and, and with that, I think something that is really spurring that is the fact that this particular generation's existential disillusionment following and I would I would also contend there's a very strong possibility during the Gilded Age we're looking both at for at the time extraordinary developments in technology and infrastructure. There's a an implied positivity. There's an implied improvement. Certainly, at the moment, I mean the season when I just constantly refer back to the. Uh, the Great White City, the Columbian Exposition of 1893, and the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904. But these dominant, dominant themes that gave purpose to American industry of the time that mm -hmm. were pushing forward and were saying, in essence, were saying was saying that the the social price that we're paying for this technology perhaps the cultural price that we're paying for this technology, that's okay because it's all gonna pay off. We're getting better. The message was humanity is getting better. We're improving as a, as a nation, we're improving as a world, we are becoming better people. And World War I just destroyed that idea because the, right. the, the machinations uh, that were celebrated in these two world's fairs in the middle of America became the technology that fed the machine of war. Exactly. So it was hard to digest for a lot of people, I think, the concept of all these things are making are supposed to make our lives easier and more fulfilling and have time to be more fulfilled with things that we're interested in and they're killing us and they're killing our boys mm -hmm. randomly and in huge numbers, which is exactly the same process that happened in the Civil War. It was. And, you know, as a, as a, a little bit of an aside, mm -hmm. into stepping into the borderlands, but it's a location that you and I have both been to. 
and it is in the Ozarks borderlands region, just in Illinois, Alton, Illinois, one of the most haunted cities in Illinois. I think there's a few other that might be contending with that, but I do Probably. adore Alton. I love Alton, and uh, I do highly too. recommend. You get a chance to visit, go visit. That said, on one of the high streets is in a beautiful candy shop that yes. is from the the structure was moved over from the 1900 World's Fair, and it's made of, of a Bavarian Bavarian oak, I think, you know, mm -hmm. lumber harvested in the in the Black Forest, and it was the part of the German Exposition Plaza in St. Louis for the 1904 World's Fair, and you know, this is this is a, a message of nations coming together, peoples loving and caring for creating all the branches between nations and the idea of the modern nations uniting in peace. Ten years later, we have World War One. It's an incredible exactly. juxtaposition of realities. And that's rough. I mean, to any time these extraordinary moments of existential crises and uh, accompanied with real life death and tragedy it, it is incredibly rough for every generation it really it really is and so that certainly contributed to this idea of almost vilifying the architecture it also served doing so also served the purpose of those who who were trying to bring in new trends to if this is bad then look what we're doing so we've made our way to art nouveau and art deco and, you know everything else and ultimately to the to the point that we're in ranch style homes in the 1960s so it is that that very <clears throat> interesting constant shift that i i really find fascinating and, and again there's the, this there's two edges to this shift one of them is of course the the lost generation hating their parents so much but not being able to do anything about it so they just decided to hate the architecture of their parents that <laughs> one was entertaining and the second i'm after my homage to the heartfelt and existential i'm going straight into the cynical that now we're we, we also have the reality that there's <laughs> you know architectural designers who are going we want to create something new so what do we do we we uh, deride the old, mm -hmm. uh, so nobody wants it. And so we can, again, sell something new, which of course it's being done in the, around the 1920s at a point that now a hundred years ago, there's a lot of architectural styles, a lot of the mansions that those guys were building mm -hmm. uh, could now be classified as haunted mansions today. Very true, very true. and. Then you had the very real fact that a lot there were a large number across the nation of these Victorian mansions where family fortunes have been depleted. Actually, one we're going to talk about tonight is a good example went through this process, the second one on our list. So they were sitting rotting in uh, in many cases. So it lent itself to the argument that look this needs to be replaced they're they're rotting and the motif 
of the rotting corpse of the house lent itself to being haunted and it all of these factors came together so that now you can have a cartoonish drawing of a victorian mansion and we all know what it means it means it's haunted it does so two two points that i think to to launch our countdown point number one additionally is this economic cultural and existential crisis that occurred approximately in the 1920s at this point Mm -hmm. brought about certainly a number of writers and artists opinions that in all likelihood they simply needed the catharsis uh, the creative catharsis in terms of what had gone on before much of which is very understandable uh socially we're we're looking at you f scott fitzgerald (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh on so many levels so at the same time something very unique was taking place and that was the development of radio and film and of course that leading to the development of tv so we are at the cusp of creating public consciousness through imagery yes and the (laughs) the victorian era and second empire architecture along with the the motifs, the architectural motifs that accompany that, became embedded in the psyche of of North America, the psyche specifically of the United States, over a period of about 50 years without us specifically asking for it or thinking about it. It simply became. And for, for myself, uh, the, my first exposure to it was watching the opening song and accompanying images of the 1969 original Scooby-Doo. Same here. I mean, that defined childhood and captivated me when I was tiny. Never left the intrigue behind, I guess. That's how I got here. <laughs> And that 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 moment that just becomes indelibly lodged in the subconscious, you know, is a little bit different for various people. For some people, it's the mansion in Psycho. Oh, definitely. Uh, for for you know, it could be a, a variety of things. For others, the Adams Family Mansion in the, mm-hmm. the original TV show, or perhaps the original cartoons that were being drawn in the 1930s and 40s. Which was part of this earlier process of developing this motif, yes. So so certainly it is a commentary on how pop culture can work. It is a commentary on how pop culture gets inside our heads without us thinking about it. And then we begin regenerating it for each generation. And exactly. to me, that's fascinating, a little creepy, but very, very fascinating. And then the shift, I suppose, you know, jumping into the into the category, into our, our official countdown, is that the sum of the mansions in the Ozarks do not fit that stereotype. Not all of them by any means. Hey, it just means we're unique, right? It does. It does. The Ozarks and the Ozarks are a unique, incredibly fascinating place. We do invite you, if you, if we do not include 
your favorite haunted mansion in the Ozarks on the list, let us know. Yes, because actually we'd love to hear about more. And if we get enough other entries to be considered, we might do a second episode of this. Or a third or fourth. I just remembered one that's not on the list. I don't have enough information on it, but I am personally okay. haunted. We'll investigate soon. So first on the list, I think we're just going to go first, uh, first on the list and then down the list and we'll decide which ones we think are the most haunted at the end. How about that? Sounds good to me. Okay. We will begin with the Missouri Governor's Mansion in Jefferson City. Now, I think this definitely is one that I don't think too many people could argue doesn't fit the bill of being a mansion. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, it's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is it was built in 1872. It definitely fits the expectations with the the French style mansard robes. It is brick. It is strongly reminiscent of that Second Empire style that was huge in the 1870s. And an aside on this, which I think is really, really funny, just want to throw this in here, is that by the 1910s and the 1920s, there was also a push that the mansard roof, which of course was French in origin, was un-American, should not be being perpetuated if, we were, if they were going to be hearkening back and paying homage to an older style, it should be colonial or federalist, something that was unabashedly American, if you're going to be building new mansions in the 1920s. Yes, they, they, did, they did get to that point. And it's just, all I can say is I'm glad they didn't tear the roof off. Because it is beautiful. <laughs> It is absolutely beautiful. These types of discussions, you know, understanding these types of discussions are, I think, particularly powerful to remove ourselves from particular fads that occur, because without the social stigma or the social pressure, which is very subjective, you look at so many of these structures today, and it is, regardless of what you know about architecture or history, Nearly anyone can look at it and be awestruck by this structure. The The governor's mansion in Jefferson City is exquisitely beautiful. It really is. The craftsmanship, the design, everything. And then it's haunted. So even better, potentially by multiple ghosts. But the the prime suspect of, of the haunting is actually the nine-year-old Carrie Crittenden, Governor Thomas Crittenden's daughter, who died in December of 1882 from diphtheria. And it's a tragic story in, in so many ways. She was such a young child and from all accounts, very well liked and loved throughout Jefferson City, not just her family. And it was even more eerie because there had just been a series of threats on the life of the governor and his family, including threats to kidnap Carrie, uh, because only a couple of months prior to her death, 
he had ultimately secured the surrender of Frank James, which was the quote, last outstanding warrant in Missouri of the Civil War. And in retaliation, people were threatening Carrie's life. And then ultimately she passes so, so soon. And, you know, with, with her passing and died of diphtheria mm -hmm. on, on December 20th, 1892. And this was, this was a nine-year-old who from, from all accounts had, had captured the, the adoration of the Capitol. Yes. That she was described as a, as a child of wonderful perception and lovely temperament. And then I think three points that really lend to the tragedy that I think then contribute to the ideas about haunting, particularly in terms of haunted mansions. Uh, the first, that I'm sure that word had gotten out that she had been threatened in regards mm -hmm. to the possibility of kidnapping or harm, capturing the imagination of the people who cared about her or who knew about her in a favorable way, and creating a sense of a protective sense about her. And number two, the reality that extraordinary power, in the case of governorship of the state, and extraordinary wealth in the form of this exquisite or second empire style mansion did not protect her from diphtheria. No, no. And very, very tragic, her, even her last words, it's discussed reference materials that everyone around the family and even servants in the mansion became very protective of her because of the threats, and, uh, particularly one of the butlers and, and, and carriage boy, David Glenn, became her personal bodyguard when the threats happened. And he was in her last thoughts. Her last words were, drive on, Dave, I see the angels. And then even, perhaps even more tragic, is for a long period of time, her grave was actually lost in, in the, in the a, overgrowth of, uh, of plant life near the mansion. Right. She, she had been buried in the, the Woodland Old City Cemetery. And I think part of that probably over time came about from the fact that later on the family, of course, were not from Jefferson City and eventually were no longer living in the mansion. And ultimately the family was buried in Kansas City, but she was in Jefferson City and no one there tending the grave and it was lost. And finally, it was the Daughters of the American Revolution that were working to preserve the cemetery were able to find her grave again. So it, it had been lost for 70 plus years. So all of those things, and those are all kinds of factors that tend to be associated with hauntings anyway. It is uh, across the board. Mm -hmm. and, and of course the, the stories, the anecdotes that are told is of young girl in white is seen playing in the mansion. Yes, there was a worker in the mansion during Kit Bond's governorship that refused to return to the mansion because he encountered her and she was playing. And then 
former first lady uh, Jean Carnahan, while they were in the mansion, had a repairman who worked in the attic and said a little girl about eight in a white dress played near him all day long. I find it interesting that she revealed herself both times to workmen and perhaps something to do with, you know, her fondness of, of Dave. Glenn, she felt close to tradesmen. I, I, I do find that interesting. And, and also the, the accounts that in her life, she was, that she just had a, a wonderful personality. The impressions, obviously, on this is that this is certainly not a darker, malevolent haunting. This is a very positive spirit yes. within the space, but understandable that it could also be very unsettling. Oh, definitely, if, particularly if you're not expecting it. I've dealt with situations where, you know, people working in a building or so forth encountered a, a spirit and then refused to go back in. So that, ha that does happen more than you probably think it does. So even though by all accounts, she wasn't doing anything scary, so... <clears throat> right now interesting uh, on this the, the the work was completed on the mansion in december of 1871 and a good chunk of the work for the mansion was performed by prisoners from the uh, penitentiary that's true that that is true I, i'm not sure whether it contributes to the pawnings one way or another but it, it is interesting to note Another thing is that two other people have passed away in the mansion, and ironically, all three passed away at Christmas time. Which is very interesting of note. Uh, mm -hmm. Do we have any additional stories or anecdotes in regards to the haunting? Of course, if, if Carrie is haunting, it's the, the mansion. It seems to be a very positive thing, but not all hauntings are, uh, you know, light and fuzzy. No, I, and I'm not aware of any that unpleasant. I've heard accounts of, you know, just people hearing footsteps and whispering, that kind of thing, but nothing that I can necessarily say that would go to one person or another. It might all be Carrie or it might be multiple, but nothing specific. The specifics seem to be wrapped around a, a little girl about Carrie's age, and so it would make sense that it's probably her. Right. Speaking of mansions that have seen not only tragedy, but have some darker stories, that leads us to our next one, which is the Limp Mansion. Yes. And in some ways, probably one of the most fabled stories in the Ozarks, really. Rats to riches to tragedy. It is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to let, I've got to check on the puppy for just a moment. I'm okay. going to let you tell a little bit more about Lint Mansion and then I'll chime back in in just a moment. All right. The, the Lint Mansion, the Lint family may not be as familiar to a lot of people today, but at one point they were household names and just about the most important name in American beer brewing. And certainly in St. Louis, this was, they, they dominated the beer business well before Anheuser-Busch came along. 
the dynasty really started with Adam Limp. His full name was Johan Adam Limp, but he went by Adam, who came to St. Louis from Germany in 1838. He started out in the grocery business, actually, and sold dry goods, groceries, and homemade beer. The beer became so popular so quickly that he closed the grocery store within two years and opened a small brewery. And then, so to speak, the rest was history. Actually, the original brewery was about where the St. Louis Arch sits today. And basically, over time, built the business up to being the largest brewer in in the region and ultimately limp brewery was the first nationwide brewery as well the first to sell their wares nationwide when the original brewery by the river became too small they outgrew the operation they found a cave south just south of the city limits and it's actually just on the edge of the geographical edge of the Ozarks for anyone who's wondering why are we talking about it geographically geologically you could walk from the the brewery to the edge of the Ozarks and not be too worn out but the cave allowed them lots of space plus they could keep it cool and this is what ultimately led to more widespread distribution and ultimately then the mansion was close by actually house was built by his father-in-law and then he purchased it and then expanded it built onto it and it is gorgeous it is it is exquisite absolutely exquisite and certainly within to a degree within a a stereotypical style that you could at least look at it and go hmm, wonder if that place is haunted <laughs> um, more of an Italianate style than than Second Empire, which is French, but it is is a very imposing structure. And before the interstate was built, the property upon which it sits was much larger. The interstate interstate to Memphis cut off the back lawn. It's yeah a a precipitous drop from directly behind the house, which is. <laughs> a little spooky in and of itself. However, of course, the, the Lint Mansion is, is open and stay all night there. There are a number of events that are hosted there on a regular basis. And you can also uh, uh, eat there. There's, a, there's a, a regular restaurant and bar that is there as well. As well as regular ghost tours. So, Yes. But an interesting thing about the Lint Mansion is it literally went through the process that we talked about earlier about how Victorian mansions gained the moniker of being, quote, the haunted mansion. We'll go through what happened with the family, but once the family, once the house left the family, it was used for office space for a while, then a boarding house. I mean, talk about from the peak of elegance to the gutter, literally, was used as a very low-class boarding house and got to the point they could even keep boarders in it and then ultimately was purchased by a family who then 
restored it and brought it back to its elegance. And so the house itself has gone through that ruination and process of decay and moldery back to being viewed as an iconic mansion. I do find interesting that now with this enough perspective and distance from the 1920s, we now often are in awe of Victorian mansions again. We are, we are. With Lim, the thing that is particularly striking is that largely beginning in the 1890s and then continuing well into the 20th century is a long series of extraordinary tragedies directly mm -hmm. associated with family. Well, it's it's ironic for for so many of the of the Robert Barron families, and, and not saying limps were in that category, but of the rich families of that era, they generally say that in typically those families lost their wealth within three generations uh, with only a couple of notable exceptions. And that's really what happened here. Adam died in 1862. And by that point, he was a millionaire by the time of the Civil War, which was you know, astronomical wealth at the mm -hmm. time. Yes. Um, then his son, William, senior took over and and really he's the one who really turned turned Lent brewing into a national concern and ultimately then it, it kind of started falling apart when his favorite son Frederick who now this is the third generation died at the age of 28 yes and uh, they had expected him to take over the business too. And, and it, it is apparent, it's at least reasonably apparent that he died of a, of a heart condition. Yes, they, and it, it was known that he had health issues a lot of his life, but died of heart failure. And this was sort of the beginning of the end for his father. That another interesting point was that William Unlike the robber barons who were known for their rivalries with each other, he actually helped other brewers. He helped Anheuser establish himself. He helped Pabst. Actually, his Frederick Pabst was his best friend. And he died then shortly after Frederick. Frederick died in 1901 and Pabst died in 1904. And at that point, then William just became despondent and, and took no interest in the business. And so ultimate and began, his health deteriorated and they noted that he nervous and unsettled. And so it made you think perhaps he had a nervous breakdown. It does. <clears throat> it really does. And this ultimately concluded with him shooting himself on February 13th of 1904. Right, I think in his office in the in the mansion, if I recall correctly. So the, then his son, William Jr. took over, again, part of the third generation. And William was a playboy. William, like, he, he was very interested in, in the brewery, particularly as far as 
the money he could make off of it. But he liked to play and spend a lot of money and ultimately ended up in, quote, the trial of the century. It's kind of funny. We seem to have a trial of the century every 20 or 30 years. But he had married a woman named Lillian. They had one son, William III, who was born in 1900. And Lillian was known as the Lavender Lady because she loved the color so much and always dressed in it. But it went so far as her carriage was lavender. The harnesses for the horses were lavender. Everything was lavender. And people were enthralled by this until ultimately things got to the point that William kind of tired of her and gave her the task of spending a thousand dollars a day to stay out of his hair basically and uh, finally when she couldn't look the other way anymore with his philandering he files for divorce and the divorce ended up being the trial of the century because basically all these rich people's dirty laundry was getting aired in the newspapers and people people were enthralled it was a soap opera before there was tv or radio then there is a, an account that in some some reference material is taken as fact but is not but is not adhered to by everyone that he that william ended up having an illegitimate son by by one of his trysts who had down syndrome or so, or a similar condition and the lore has grown up that this boy was kept in the mansion and locked in the attic and raised by the servants and he haunts the mansion there's even a, a at one point one of the housekeepers was interviewed years later and said oh yes he 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 uh, existed and died in the 1930s and so forth but never gave his name even the even the person telling the you know telling the secret never divulged his name and there's no record of any birth or any child and so while some go with that story and say yes this happened and it's a basis for part of the haunting a lot of historians discount it as basically Wow, we're we're we are going to tell a really good tale after after that trial. Very true, and so it's that aspect of it is almost moving into the 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 realm of urban lore. But mm -hmm. William Lim Senior killing himself in the mansion, uh, his son's essentially playboy life, the the publicity. Uh, of the of the trial of the divorce proceedings etc that on the other hand is part of history it is it is and then all during the same time period then uh will senior's mother dies you know it just kind of deteriorates and then prohibition comes along and they can't really keep it going and part of it i think is just william's apathy and he finally just closes the doors and actually closed the, he closed the the brewery down and didn't tell his workers they found out by coming to work and finding the doors locked which again just is a prelude for what comes 
later, it sounds like he's just following in his father's footsteps of despondency and depression. It does. It does. Of course, prohibition occurs in 1919. And on March 20th, 1920, William's sister, Elsa, quoted as the wealthiest heiress in St. Louis, shoots herself. She shoots herself. And and, uh, it, it was rather tragic. She had a unhappy marriage. And I've read biographers who concluded that she she elected to kill herself rather than go through the spectacle of divorce that her brother had gone through and and so on and so forth. So that unfortunately that happened. Now one of the older uh, the older sister actually she had moved to Milwaukee and was married into the Pabst family. She's one of the she's she's about the she's the only child that really tragedy did not befall. Then by about 1922, everything's being, most everything's being sold off. The the business is being sold off for pennies on the dollar. And this is even before the depression comes. And so basically the mansion is left. William sinks deeper into depression. And then December 29th, 1922, which is just months after selling the business off, he shoots himself like his father. And also in the mansion. Also in the mansion. So basically that leaves two brothers, Charles and Edwin, and, and both of them had left the brewery years before and were not expected to take over or help run it, didn't know that much about the business. Edwin basically secluded himself into what's termed his estate in Kirkwood. Then William Jr.'s son, who was the subject of the trial of century divorce, he dies young of a heart attack. So basically, Charles ended up in the mansion and he had remodeled it and lived there with a couple of servants. And then the story of that he supposedly was there with this illegitimate child that is question whether it is urban legend or not. And he starts developing psychological issues. He almost a Howard Hughes character. He becomes germaphobic, obsessive compulsive fritters away his his state of mind then he ends up in 1949 killing his beloved pet Doberman Pinscher in the basement shooting the dog then climbs the stairs to his bedroom and shoots himself yeah and so basically only uh, the sister that had moved to Milwaukee survived and then uh, Edwin who stayed in Kirkwood. He basically was a recluse, but lived to the age of uh, 90. But ironically, when he died, he had orders for his butler to burn all of the all of the paintings that they had collected, as well as family documents and artifacts. And so a lot of the history of the family was lost because it was burned in a fire, which again, does smack a little bit of perhaps some sort of psychological issue. I don't know. It's it's very it's very tragic, but it's also just disturbing. 
It, the, it really is. And, and then part of the reason that they had a hard time running it later as a boarding house is because of basically hauntings. People got frightened and wouldn't live there very long. Part of it was mentioning you know, knocks and footsteps and things like that, but it must have been something if, if, if it um, kept them from keeping it rented. It, it finally, because they couldn't keep it rented, it, it got run down to the point of almost being a flop house. It's just an extraordinary, extraordinary history. It's a disturbing history, as I previously noted. And I'm, I'm very happy to see it restored, a thriving business. It's a fantastic place to visit. That said, just in terms of heaviness and experience there, the place is absolutely haunted. There's no yeah. question about that. It's yeah, I, I don't really question that either. <laughs> very 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 concerning and uh i highly recommend that you check it out it's uh just be careful around the mirrors that's all i'm gonna say about that oh you're not gonna say anything more <laughs> i uh, we'll leave that for well go check out the mirror episode uh we cover uh, oh that's mirror true uh, but uh yeah mirrors are mirrors are concerned a couple months back we did a, a great magic mirror episode that i just enjoyed doing the research on but i also experienced so that was interesting our next on the list is ravenswood yes and and i will say i have not been to ravenswood but i have heard a number of people talk about it including a number of paranormal investigators it's it's also known as the leonard home it's it's near bunston in cooper county missouri it was built in 1880 as, and I love the description, an eclectic Italianate Second Empire style brick mansion. So I can hear the 1920s modernists cringing in their graves as they run headlong into a sleek modernist design. But <laughs> the, uh, the, the photos of Ravenswood is extraordinarily beautiful. And... Uh, it is on the Nas National Register of Historic Places. It's located 10 miles south of Boonville, Missouri. And it is, from what we can tell, considerably haunted. Yes, indeed. Well, for, for one reason, you, you have um, the same family still lives in it. And that is just amazing to me. That does not happen very often anymore. And there are, there are buildings on site that are even older than the house as well. So it, it really is amazing. And I, I've heard a lot of things, people, their reactions and the way that they tell it, their facial features, their expressions and so forth, very animate to the point that it seems to really make an impression on people. I, I really want to go sometime because people that have been there that I've talked to, you can tell it really made an impression. I, I like some of the activity that goes on hearing a mechanical music sound, but the music box in the home hasn't worked for years. Lantern lights bobbing uh, over the lawn at night. And they liken that to the original Mrs. Leonard's fondness of large summer parties on the lawn. 
it does not appear to be a, a scary haunting. It seems to be very warm, actually. I I want to visit it. I really do. And one of, one of the stories involves a family matriarch passing at the age of 90 in one of the bedrooms. And after her body was removed for preparing for the funeral, a servant goes to collect her clothing, presumably to take to the funeral home, and they can't get into her bedroom because the door is locked by the time they they go from the inside inside and they go to get tools to try to open the door and by the time they get back the door is no longer locked yeah i i really like that it it just is an intriguing looking home it is it is and an exceptional history and it really speaks to that region uh, of history uh, of mm-hmm. Missouri history along along the Missouri River in that space that really was a slice of of southern plantation culture in the in the antebellum years and portions of that were able to limp along after and during reconstruction. Yes. That brings us to the Oliver Anderson house in Lexington. Yes, it does. And you have been there a, num- a number of times. Yes, and I've, I've actually investigated it as well. Now, an interesting thing, if you've watched, watched or listened to the, the show in the past, you've heard us talk about General Joe Shelby and his role in the Dark Ozarks over time. A direct connection, besides the fact that he had part of his business in Lexington. He, he lived at Waverly, which was 10 miles away. But Oliver Anderson, who came to the area in the 1850s, early 1850s, and started building this house, went into business in the hemp business, which of course Joe Shelby was in. But he went into business with his son-in-law, Howard Gratz who, if you recall, was Joe Shelby's stepbrother. <laughs> it's uh, six degrees of separation, or maybe one. It is. And in fact, when, and in fact, when, the, uh, when the Jayhawkers, actually even before the Civil War, attacked Joe Shelby's business and, and burnt his warehouse down and so forth, the the person who who helped bail out Joe Shelby and, and his stepbrother Gratz was Oliver Anderson to the point of ultimately Anderson filing bankruptcy. He ended up losing everything through the Civil War and yes. actually lost the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but now in the- part because he was trying to help his son-in-law and Joe Shelby. Yes. Now the house is is essentially a modified federal style uh, mm-hmm. brick. It's not in in some ways it's not dissimilar to the Ritchie Mansion and the Kendrick in terms of some of its architectural style. Yes, it's just much bigger, and uh, and that also puts it in uh, in a similar style to the Hermitage, uh, Andrew Jackson's home, just yes. as film. But one thing that, even if you look at the photos or whatever, 
one thing that I can portray hopefully to everybody from having been there is that it is so, so imposing when you stand on the front yard, you are literally maybe 1500 feet from the Missouri River. There now is a tree line partway between as a, as a windbreak. But during this time period, there, was, there were no trees between the front door and the water. And even now with the trees, you can still just stand there and watch the water flow by. Mm. It's mesmerizing. This is also a location that this is the only place I've ever had this feeling that it was such a pool, something there had such a pool that I literally just wanted to sit down at the table on the side yard and not leave. You, something was there that really was enticing just Come and stay with us. And it to the point that, and I was not the only one there that had that sensation. So it wasn't just me being whimsical. Several people noted that to the point of, we need to leave this area because you just felt like you were pulling, being pulled in that far. Otherwise it might keep you. It might keep you, exactly. Now, and I do want to correct myself. It is built in the Greek Revival style, uh, right. not the federal style. Uh, but there, there are some similarities of that design for now. Yes, yes. And it also has a huge summer kitchen. And if you're not familiar with summer kitchens, particularly from that time period, they were all outdoor. Um, and often they were dug into the ground with retaining walls usually then covered with thatch or something so that while you while everyone was cooking during the summer they didn't pass out from heat exhaustion basically yeah. and, and also to uh, protect the uh, the the home itself from fire yes yes now the winter kitchen was attached and it actually was part of the house in brick although a lot of a lot of homes from this time period the the winter kitchen would be a wooden structure so that it could be pulled away from the house if there was a hearth fire or a chimney fire but theirs was brick very large An interesting note the battle of lexington during the civil war was fought on the front yard it's also sort of tongue-in-cheek referred to as the battle of the hay bales they do put large bales out to demonstrate and they they would have been what you would um traditionally view as you know a haystack this was before balers and they would what they did is they'd roll them on their side then because they were conical shaped like a teepee roll them on their side and douse them with water um and the, the soldiers basically rolled them across the yard as a defensive shield. Yeah. Successfully. The, of course, the Battle of Lexington was September 18th through the 20th of 1861, so very early in the war, as mm -hmm. was a lot of significant conflict in Missouri. Yeah. In the, uh, the Trans-Mississippi Theater. And 
with the, the Battle of Lexington outside of Missouri is, is comparatively not terribly well known. It was certainly a very significant battle for the state. And mm -hmm. it was a battle that had strong repercussions as it goes down the line for the war as a whole. So the you know Lexington was was definitely a stronghold that mm -hmm. the, the federal army was moving against. It, it really was. There were, um, I, I believe it was six soldiers executed in the house, captured and executed. It was interesting when I've been there, the docent, the docents would say that they were executed on the upper uh, landing of the stairs. The stairs at the rear of the house, you had a flight up on each side of the hallway with a exposed landing on the top. And I, I remember thinking, you know, why why would you bother marching them up the stairs to to shoot them? But didn't think much about it. Mm -hmm. And in the course of investigating over a night, there were several times. Every time you walk through the first floor hallway, it was as if you were in a tunnel that was swirling, had that sensation. Mm -hmm. And about the second or third time being down there and, and doing EVP sessions, Rob and I, you've met Rob, Rob and I look at each other and said, I bet you the, the uh, executions happened down here. And afterwards we, we dug into original sources and and found that 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 was the case. The docents were telling the story incorrectly. You, you just felt like you were going through a vortex, and and you know the eye of a hurricane almost walking through there. There were a number of disembodied voices and EVPs captured. Particularly, someone was not comfortable with Rob being there. Interesting. What uh, what sort of indicators were you getting in that regard? Telling him to leave, cussing at him, get the hell out. But more than just the typical get out, which can be misconstrued, very forceful that he was not welcome. And my only thought was maybe someone was misconstruing him as perhaps an enemy soldier. And mm -hmm. he, he served in the military. So perhaps there was something that they sensed. I don't know. That is interesting. What just overall, we've got the, the vortex sense at the place mm -hmm. of execution. The mansion was at the center of the battle. Yeah. What what are your thoughts in terms of hauntings or specific hauntings associated with the mansion? I, I think it, I think that it seems to be mainly centered around the battle. I I did not get a much sense of, say, family members, that kind of thing. It was almost as if parts of the battle are still going on, you know, still, you know, you that you're walking into those moments, except for out on, on the yard. Now, that, that could be something else because that, you know, some people say, oh, that was, that's something just deceptive. That's something evil trying to draw you in. 
I'm not convinced of that entirely. I could see it being something or someone that just really loves it and and come sit on my porch for a while, so to speak. I'm not convinced what that is yet, but definitely I would say that you you encounter elements of the battle more than anything. Yes, I think that's fascinating. And you do see that type of experience mm -hmm. with a number of Civil War battlefields, uh, particularly if in, in this regard with, with the homes and the mansions involved. We've got a couple more uh, to uh, to discuss coming up. And, but the next on the is one of, I would consider one of our most interesting mansions. It's the Leaper Mansion, yes. uh, classified as the Leaper Mansion. This is in southwestern Wayne County near the Black River. It's just south of Piedmont, Missouri, which has its own notoriety as being one of the most significant sites for uh, UFO encounters in U.S. history, but we're going back to the Civil War, and William Leeper served as a captain in the Union Army. Even beyond that, he hunted bushwhackers. He hunted Confederate person rangers. There's several of these types of figures on both sides, not just on the Union, throughout the U.S. that became notorious for hunting down guerrilla fighters. And he was particularly viewed as ruthless and cruel and developed quite the reputation of being a butcher, basically. Encounters in Southern Missouri, um, Southeastern Missouri, as well as Northern Arkansas even after he was released from his unit, he continued this activity throughout the war, including organizing the burning of Donovan, Missouri, which is the county seat of Ripley County, which isn't far away from Leaper. It, it was a very personal matter for him. It wasn't just he, he was doing this and taking liberties as a commander or even in ways that say Sherman is portrayed in Georgia as a butcher. I think Leeper in some ways is even more so because it wasn't a matter of strategy. It was personal, just more who he was seems to be. It was. <clears throat> from everything that we can tell, he is still remembered in many ways unfavorably, despite the fact that after the war, he became quite wealthy, comparatively speaking, and did a lot to bring industry into the region, into the mountains. Including bringing, getting the railroad brought in. Yes, and bypassing a neighboring town because they had turned his application to join their Masonic Lodge down. Yes, but but again, that's just sort of how he took things very personally. And again, I mean, he, you know, his gorilla hunt, hunting activity was, didn't include just hunting down gorillas and, and killing them in a fight. He would kill, he, you know, he was known to 
kill unarmed men, things like yeah. that. Really moving outside of the, the, the accepted processes of war, which was yeah, I think enough. It was way, way beyond the handbook at that point. Yes, and, uh, and, and after a while, they figured that out. Yeah, and that's why they, they, they relieved him of, of command, but he, he didn't stop there. No. Even that didn't stop him. That, now what is, of course, the perhaps the most chilling aspect of Leeper's story is in the weeks preceding his death. He passed, presumably of old age, many years after the war. Yeah, 1912, yeah. And the, the story surrounding his death is that he went mad, uh, but specifically mad, having to be chained to his bed, screaming that dark forces were attempting to take him. Yes, not sure if he was being haunted by those he had killed or something. Some people theorize that it's something even darker than that. The, the Leaper Mansion is interesting, and I think it's a great point of, of entry in terms of the conversation of what constitutes a mansion. Yes, agreed. Uh, and it is, it is uh, the, the existing photos that, that we have. It's a beautiful home. Mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a beautiful home for the, the region and certainly for the era, luxurious home, but it does not fit any of these stereotypical criteria of the haunted mansion. No, and particularly of the quote, Victorian gilded mansion. But again, I think you have to look to context. We often will say you have to view people and their views and deeds in context to their times. And we have to view mansions that way a little bit too. So in another area, if it were sitting in St. Louis at the same time, it would not have been considered a mansion. No, no. But in this location, in this particular era, uh, it was, and and it is, of course, said to be haunted by Mr. Leeper himself, who's seen stalking around the property. And, you know, as far as apparitions and ghosts go, encountering William Leeper might be a little scarier than most, just based on his personality and deeds in life, because... I a bit of I, that does carry over, it seems. I would agree. Now, our next on the list is heading to the far eastern Ozarks, and that is the Sherwood Minton home. Yes, in Cape Girardeau. And it's a beautiful structure, absolutely beautiful structure. It, 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 it looks very intriguing. I have not been there. I would like, I'd like to see it because there's something about it that just pulls me in but and it is a pre-civil war home it is it was built in the 1850s and served as a civil war hospital which sets a lot of checkmark boxes <laughs> in and of itself yes and a lot of people in the home have reported hearing and seeing apparitions of soldiers 
And there is one particularly tragic story that's associated with uh, the Sherwood Minton home that has been documented online. Uh, one of the rooms in the house is called the slave room, has been known to not be able to keep anything hanging on the walls. The story is a minister operated an underground railroad stop there, and a young girl was hiding in the room who was caught by slave catchers. She was hiding in the wardrobe, and one of the men saw her dress sticking out through a mirror, and it is said that she cursed the room. And certainly may have. It is, it is definitely possible. Something that I think a lot of people might take a step back to say, because we oftentimes consider the, the possibility of curses, et cetera, to be fairy tales. There, there's indicators that there are times they're not. One of the more famous examples, you go back to Salem, Massachusetts, and Giles Corey cursed his accusers and the, the judge and prosecutor, and they all were dead within years. So. Which is unsettling. It is. Now, next on the list happens to be the Peel Mansion. Yes. Now, I've, I've been by the Peel Mansion. I have not been in it. And this is in Benville, Arkansas. Yes. And it does tick off uh, uh, most of the boxes for our idea of, oh, that could be haunted. It does. It is it's a very imposing structure. It, it's a bit like the Limp Mansion, is, is that now road through town has been widened, and now there's a retaining wall, and, and you could just about throw something from your car window and hit the front of the house you know i find a little a little sad but it, it does look even more imposing to drive by than the photos are so well and it is absolutely gorgeous it definitely fits the just in terms of size fits the criteria of mansion it's six thousand square foot home the most dominant or apparent dominant haunting of the Peel Mansion may, may actually be the most interesting haunting that we cover tonight, which is of a, of a girl who didn't die. And, and, and we've talked about this before. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the living can haunt places. And in, in that regard, it reminds me a little bit of something we talked about with the woman that you met who believes that she may be the crying baby that one hears at Peace Cemetery. That is true. For whatever reason, we can leave such an impression in an environment for Pete's and not necessarily, I think often people think of that sort of residual kind of energy coming from someone's death or, or such a monumental moment in time. And certainly that case, it wasn't for, for her as a baby, it wasn't. She really wasn't aware of what was going on, but it certainly was a moment in time that perhaps the moment itself can absorb. I'm not sure. And just briefly, the, the Peel Mansion was built by Colonel Samuel West Peel. Uh, he was trying to uh, get the attention of his, the woman that he hoped would become his wife, Mary, and finally promised that he was going to build a mansion uh, grand enough to remind her of the mansions from back home in Alabama. And uh, Peel 
achieved the rank of colonel in the Confederate Arkansas Infantry in the Civil War. And then he goes on to become a lawyer and became prosecutor and then served in the Arkansas House of Representatives from 1883 to 1893. So, and a number of people actually did pass away in the House, but that's mm -hmm. not, interestingly enough, that's not the most dominant phantom story associated with the mansion. An aside, one thing that I that I find very interesting here, it, and it just is nice to ponder for people to think about, is that one, he did impress the girl and she married him. Two, she would almost compulsively preserve food after the war because of such a fear of going hungry again as they had during the war. And she would give food away to families for the rest of her life in the area so that they wouldn't be hungry. A good example of the impression that the the war left and how it can affect the psyche, just like we were talking earlier about World War I affecting the psyche of everyone. Agreed. Fast forward to the 1920s, and a new family has moved into the Peel Mansion, the English family. Mm -hmm. And one of the daughters apparently succumbs to the stress of surgery during an appendicitis surgery in one of the bedrooms. She comes back. Yes. Interestingly enough, in terms of near-death experiences, this is a long period of time. It's several hours have passed between the point that she's pronounced dead and covered with a sheet and when uh, someone sees the sheet moving and discovers that she is alive. Yeah, well, it, it seems like a long time now, but it really, those incidents really did happen more often than you thought in that time period because people would be so ill and breath would be so shallow that it wasn't recognized. And even doctors could be fooled because they couldn't find a pulse and so forth. One of the more famous exam examples, because often it would last long enough that they had a funeral and they would end up being buried. And one famous example is actually Robert E. Lee's mother. And I forget what she had come down with. I wanna say malaria, but I may be wrong. And they was pronounced dead and buried and a bell ringer, because often they would have a, a bell on a string so that if you woke up in the coffin, you could ring it. And that's that's why they would often have people stay at the cemetery for several days. And she woke up in the coffin. And this was actually before Robert E. Lee was born. So came that close to him never being born. That's incredible. Now, from, from what we can tell, or certainly from accounts that Marjorie English reported that she had a, a kind of near-death experience or kind of death experience and mm -hmm. And she actually lived out her life very interested in the afterlife and death experiences. But the room in which this occurred was reported or is reported to have hauntings that would be associated with her dying in the room. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, they kept the door locked for over 40 years because they kept hearing crying. It's, it's really, really phenomenal. And Marjorie passed away in her 80s or early 90s in the year 2000. Yes, I, I find that very fascinating. I, 
And I do think those kind of incidents can happen. Why? I, I, I'm not sure, but somehow something with time and space, I think. I tend to agree. Now that brings us to the Clayton House. Yes. Uh, in Fort Smith. And uh, we are with, with, Fort, with Clayton House and with the Lynn Mansion, we're very much on the extremes of the Ozarks, but they're too fascinating not to include. Fort Smith, yeah, it's 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 still there, but it is getting south. I, we should note, I guess, with the Peel Mansion too, though, that Mr. Peel, Samuel Peel, was still seen in the house from time to time, as well as his daughter Minnie, and then Marjorie is heard. Yes. So the Clayton Clayton House has a really fascinating. It has a multi-level history itself. Mm -hmm. uh, had been first built and then essentially rebuilt. First built in 1852. Uh, then being converted into a hospital for soldiers during the Civil War. And then uh, its name um, really being associated with its following owner, uh, who's William Clayton, who was an attorney appointed to Western District by President Grant in 1874. Yes, his brother was, was, a, was a governor of Arkansas, another brother was, was active in politics as well. William is interesting because yes, he was appointed as attorney for the Western District by Grant and he served under Judge Isaac Parker and known to many as the hanging judge. So Clayton was tasked with prosecuting criminals, uh, a lot of them out of the Indian Territory and outlaws. One interesting story is when Judge Parker ended up with sort of a personal vendetta or inspired zeal to capture Belle Starr and her husband. Clayton was the prosecutor and the story goes that Bellstar hired someone to kill Clayton and actually met whoever she, I, and I don't remember, because I didn't look this up today, I didn't think about it, who the man that was going to kill Clayton, met him at a county fair to pay him. And then as they were talking, found out that Bass Reeves held the warrant for her and Bass Reeves never did not get his man, whether he brought him in dead or alive and that she thought better of it and called off the head on Clayton. Wow, it's a lot of connective history, a, mm -hmm. lot, of, a lot of moving pieces. The hauntings, associated with that with the Clayton House are, are really pretty numerous. We have reports of, of stomping boots, we have slamming doors, uh, we have music coming from other areas of the house, sometimes the apparition of a woman, uh, individuals being touched, individuals having their hair tugged, and possibly the most notable is a, an apparition referred to as the tall angry man. Yes, including what appears to be a, a top hat, mm -hmm. wearing a top hat. So lots, definitely lots going on. It is a beautiful home. There's no it question. Is. 
It is absolutely beautiful. It is described as an Italian style Victorian mansion. And it is definitely one to get your attention. It is one of those iconic homes that you would look at and say, mm, I wonder if that's haunted because it looks like it ought to be haunted. Then it is. <laughs> Apparently, yes. <laughs> well, we have talked about eight homes. We have two to go. Yes, we do. Uh, two of our favorite homes, just for the record. And uh, oh my gosh, there's, and, and you know, come with us on uh, uh, the Joplin walking tour and you'll see some additional of our favorite haunted mansions that are not yeah. on tonight with. That said, the last two on the list are the Ritchie Mansion and the Kendrick House. Uh, yes. Not far from one another, one in Newtonia, one just north of Carthage. We've done yes. event, many events at both. You are uh, work closely the preservation of the Kendrick House. Yeah, I'm on the board. I'm one of the board of directors. Been associated with it for 14, 15 years and have have done investigations and events there for about 14 years. And lots of lots of hauntings associated with both. Mm -hmm. In the case of we can kind of talk about them in conjunction. Uh, they are in appearance actually quite similar. Yes, they're both modified federal style. Kendrick House is about a third larger than the Ritchie House, built by the same builder, actually. And you, you can see that. It's, it, that's apparent when you look at them. And some people might say, well, are they really mansions? Are they big enough to be mansions? The Kendrick House is, is pretty sizable, although the number of rooms is not numerous. Uh, they're large rooms. But again, you have to look at the context and they certainly, they both were called mansions by everyone in the region when they were newly built. In fact, the Kendrick House was just known as the mansion for a very long time. And, and something to take into definite consideration when you're doing this kind of analysis, go back to the 1850s and these these homes with the you know a little bit of work even in their original state without the add-ons that, that took place after the civil war um, could be comfortably lived in these are large square footage uh they're 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 enormous rooms they're very tall ceilings they're imposing as you said a modified federalist style it's very imposing structures are they, you know, square footage wise, are they on the 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 scale of the uh, McMansions that began proliferating in the late 80s? No. But when you realize that nearly everyone else in the county in the region was excited to possibly have a dog truck cabin, these were mansions within the region of southwest Missouri in the 1850s, without a doubt. Well, and, and, and that's another part of it is that some of these areas that we've talked about in further east and in St. Louis, so forth, or Jeff City, they were settled sooner. Yes. Yes. When they when the Ritchie Mansion and the Kendrick House were being built, there wasn't very much here. And so mm -hmm. the fact that they had glass windows. Yes. 
yes. was was something that qualified them as a mansion because glass had to be brought in from St. Louis and there were Actually. very few yeah very few bridges even and they were brought in glass was brought in by Oxwagon can you imagine bringing you know panes of glass by Oxwagon it was and, a, it was an astronomical price and it was handmade glass Yes, uh, even yeah, even uh, panes of glass were hand blown at the time. People don't think about that. And then you might get one for every ten that were on the wagon that didn't break. You know, <laughs> absolutely incredible. So these are, and they are, they're exquisitely crafted homes. Mm -hmm. They have extraordinary history. Uh, the Civil War predominantly touched both yes. uh, the Battle of the Battle of Carthage raged through July 3rd, July 4th, 1861, Battle of Carthage raged through the Kendrick House property. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, across their property. And it was commandeered and used as a field hospital. Uh, by both sides, correct? Yeah, both sides, uh, initially by the Union, then by the Confederacy. It was occupied various times by both sides. Joe Shelby used it as a staging headquarters for his invasion of Missouri later on in the war. Housed his horses in the parlor. Uh, in fact, we still have evidence of that. I mean, so many things happened that really did affect, affect as well as Rich Mansion. I mean, Rich Mansion went through two battles in Newtonia and had cannonball damage uh, to it. These are both houses that were viewed as mansions. Both families were very well-to-do, endured a lot. At the Kendrick House, it was also a community sick house, which is an interesting note. This is at times before there were hospitals. Often there weren't doctors around. So anyone that was, that was seriously injured or ill diphtheria, smallpox, et cetera, were, was brought to the house to be taken care of. And then midwives would meet women at the house to deliver babies because it was a lot more sanitary than most of the log cabins. Because as you mentioned, a, a dog trot cabin was high scale. Most people had a one room log cabin. And if they were lucky, a, a notch out of one log with a with a blanket hung over it for a window so very very it's very difficult i think for us to conceive of just how difficult pioneer life was yes and now with interesting things the ritchie mansion was an iconic center of the at the time new and burgeoning town of newtonia missouri mm -hmm. and kendrick house was not part of an incorporated town, but it was the center of a essentially a commercial community that was right on the main crossroads for mm -hmm. pretty much everybody at the time. Yes, and fact, well, and the family outfitted settlers going west, and the, the area around it ended up being called Kendrick Town, although it was unincorporated. Although, I mean, it's just across the river and a little ways to town but lots of because of everything that happened and, and in that situation there were five generations of the family lived in the house and 
occupied it for 130 years. So a little bit like the Leonard's. And I think that contributes to hauntings as well. And I, I would say that the Kendrick House probably has at least a dozen I residents. Agree. Agreed. The, going over to the Ritchie Mansion, the, the most dominant spirit that seems to present itself or herself is Mrs. Ritchie. Yes, yes. And and um, e either first or second, Mrs. Ritchie, I tend to think the second, but simply for the fact that of the time that she was there and during the war, but she has been seen and actually some of my favorite personal accounts come from that, actually from law enforcement, Dread Task Force members have said that Oh, probably probably 15 years ago now, they were assembling to go do a bust. And when they do, they will all meet, get ready, and go together so they can all, you know, swoop in all at once. And so when they do that, they they meet somewhere that's kind of out of the way. And so they had parked in front of the Ritchie mansion and were getting ready. And someone looks up and says, Hey, look, look there. And there's a a woman in period clothing standing on the upper deck of the porch, just staring at them. And they said that she just stood there and stared at them, did not react to them. They, you know, a couple of them, you know, um, said hello or waved and she just gave them a stern look and then eventually disappeared. That would be Mrs. Ritchie. Yes. <laughs> and then, um, my own my own experience first time I was in the house um, I think I encountered her uh, with an EVP I was there doing research for one of my books and uh, when I was there there were actually reenactors practicing outside and so one of the fellows was giving me a tour and he was dressed in Missouri State Militia regalia and the Richies were union. And we hadn't been in the house about three minutes, three to five minutes. And I'm running an audio recorder, so I have the interview. And we had walked into what had been the dining room. And there's an EVP just very clearly of a woman that says, get out of my house. And I don't think she was meaning me. I think she was probably referring to the reenactor. <laughs> and uh, that sounds like Mrs. Ritchie, too. Yeah. You've had experience there. You want to tell that? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's difficult because it's not something that I physically saw. It is something that I experienced the impression of. Mm-hmm. And so that's that, of course, is is an interesting thing to explain. But my impression thereof was visual. The impression mm -hmm. very visual. It was very specific. And uh, I am personally very convinced that Mrs. Ritchie regularly walks the, uh, the the second floor porch of the Ritchie Mansion, and that she acquiesces to excessive numbers of guests with the understanding that they are there because they care about the mansion, but she is not amused by large numbers of people in the house. 
No, I think I think it's it's like she tolerates it. Yes, that is exactly the, the impression. Now, just in closing on the Kendrick House, Kendrick House is really the, the haunted mansion that taught me that many residents, many spirit residents of a home um, are, are likely there because they have so much love and appreciation and bond uh, with the location, possibly even with each other, the high, the high degree that many of these individuals knew each other uh, mm -hmm. in life or were related, are related to each other over a span of time. And the Kendrick House is a space of reunion in many ways. I think so. Um, and there are others there as well, I believe. But just, and I, I mean, people, people have seen Civil War soldiers. They see a young girl who fits the description of uh, Pauline Janney, who is a, would have been a great grandchild of the original Kendricks. Another young child, Carol Janney, makes herself presence very well known and has captivated a lot of people. Who and she's nicknamed Carrot because she will tell you that her name is Carrot, and that was her pet name in the family. Family. Uh, servant Rose seems to be there, Mrs. Mrs. Kendrick. At least a couple of the Kendrick men, yeah. Mr. Janney, and as, as well as you get a lot of activity that does seem to be from the war as well. And and there were there were tragedies. There were some very dark uh, occurrences that that took place that may be contributing to hauntings as well. You had a unique experience of of taking someone who's actually quite well known in the paranormal field into the house. Oh, oh yes, yes, uh, John Zaffis. John was in town. We, um, we were filming something for him and I had arranged for him to purchase something for his paranormal museum. And so while we were out getting that, he just looks at me and says, what's the most haunted house around here can you take me by it and I said I'll do you one better I'll take you in it and so we go to the Kendrick house and he's walking through it I just walk upstairs because I don't I don't want to affect anything and what many people may not realize is that John actually is I would say one of the best psychics I've ever met it's not usually openly portrayed on tv when he's on on shows but he's walking through and I'm upstairs, I'm standing on the landing and he's walking up the stairs and to give you an idea, it's like January and it's cold and the heat is set at like 50 in the house. So it's cold in there. And as he's coming up the stairs, he looks at me and just with a, a look and he said, what the hell happened here? And I said, I'm gonna go on through and see what you think. And he walked into the master bedroom and stopped and literally broke into a sweat with sweat running down his face and just turned and looked at me and said, lots of people died in this room. Then we walked downstairs and sat down and he started telling me details of things that happened there that are not public, that have not been put out on the internet 
that are just known through the family and the house and records and so forth in great detail. Mm. Oh. And then later was on the, the Paranormal Science Lab podcast a number of years ago and stated on there that Kendrick House was one of the most active places he's ever been in his life. And this is from someone who investigated the Amityville Horror House, the Conjuring House, etc. Yes. So, first of all, that is one of my favorite shared moments. Um, I guess I'm going to I'm going to put it out as a toss up out of our ten for tonight mm -hmm. uh, for myself as somewhere of a toss up between Kendrick and Lem. I'd say so. I, I would say so. And for some reason, I, I would have to say that. And then the Anderson house for me as well. This is a moving target. Um, yeah. Some of the places we haven't been to, some places I haven't been to. I'm, I'm very, very curious what other people think, other mansions to put on the list, other investigations to do. There's a, there's a lot of work to be done here. There is, and, and we do want your input. So let us know what what mansion you think should be considered. In between, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. And on the next episode, we are going to be discussing the most iconic haunted mansions. Sounds familiar. However, haunted mansions in the Ozarks borderlands. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks. <laughs>